Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. It's really great to be back. Producing Back from the Abyss in seasons is both a gift and a tiny bit of torture, because I feel like I'm playing hooky all summer, not releasing an episode every two weeks. So, welcome to the season five opener, and I can't wait to share this story with all of you. But first, a quick announcement. I have a couple of openings for consultation and mentoring for psychiatrists, psychiatric NPs, PAs, or psychotherapists. So if you're interested, please contact me through my website, craigheacockmd.com. I've had a number of requests from listeners for a story about sexual healing, and I've been on the hunt now for months for the right person. And I knew that this was a big ask, and that I had to be very mindful and careful about who I approached. And then, earlier this summer, while on a run, of course, there's a shocker, it hit me. I knew just the person to take on this heavy lifting, someone who could share what sexual healing looks like. And it had to be my good friend and colleague, Shelley Weinmiller, a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, a trauma therapist here in Fort Collins, and a joyous and radiant soul. Her story is definitely a hard one. But it's also beautiful and profound and tender. It made me laugh and cry, and I learned a lot while making this. I hope you too find meaning and strength and wisdom in Shelley's words. One note, Shelley tells her story chronologically, but due to her protective dissociation, she didn't put all the pieces together until many years later. I am the youngest of 13 and was raised on a farm in central Wisconsin, a small city, well, I wouldn't even call it a city, a little village of 500 people. And I was raised in the Catholic Roman Church, and my parents were heavily involved with the church. My, my mother went to Mass every day. We never missed CCD class. You know, Wednesdays and Sundays, we were very close with the priest. He was a good friend of my dad's and my mother's and would come to dinner and Christmas and, you know, most days he was at our house. I um, remember when I was four, he started to abuse me, sexually abuse me, and I remember... Um, going up there with my mother a lot. And that's kind of how I would get up there. And she would be working for the church. And he would have us come and work for him all through my teenage years. Mm. Yeah. And the abuse started at four and continued. My last kind of memory I have was when I was 14. And I... Um, remember riding my bike up there looking for attention. I blamed myself a long time for that, um, that I seeked it out. Mm -hmm. And it took a long time for me to come in my therapy journey to realize that none of this was my fault. Mm -hmm. So the priest was such a part of your lives, like your spiritual lives, your day-to-day lives, like he, he was almost part of the family. He was part of the family, yeah. absolutely. So he had ultimate access to you. He did have ultimate access. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anytime he wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, he had it set up where he would have 
you know, girls come and help uh, do secretarial work. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, complete access to the whole community anytime you want it is mm-hmm. right. Did your family have any idea that something was wrong for you? Do you think no, that, no, no. I mean, the denial again, that oppression of a system so strong, and you just do what you're told to do. I, I mean, when I was a girl, when I was four, I had terrible anxiety. I didn't know that was anxiety, of course, because you're just little. But I would curl my hair so tight at night when I was sleeping that I would end up with snarlers, I would call them. And my older sisters, you know, would often have to cut them out because they couldn't comb them out. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously I was struggling a lot. Mm -hmm. You were struggling physically and medically even. Yeah, medically. Yeah, Yeah, I couldn't go to the bathroom. I had trouble... um, Afraid of going on the toilet, which, of course, as we now know, a sign of abuse. My my mom did take me to the doctor, and actually, I got that chart uh, from Marshfield Clinic to see if it was in there. And, and by golly, yeah, I I went in at four, stomach pain and inability to go to the bathroom, so constipation, and. The doctor said, oh, she's just lonely. Uh, she's her, All her siblings are gone at school, and she cries a lot, so let's put her in school. Mm-hmm. So at four years old, I went to school. And that was really, really difficult. Do you have any idea why the abuse ended at 14? Yeah, because uh, he eventually he got Parkinson's, mm-hmm. and... He got a throat infection, and he lost his voice, like he couldn't speak. He would still do mass and kind of grumble and mumble, but then everything came, his life came crashing down, Mm. right? And, you know, hallelujah for that, because then he he was done. However, you know, he, he was so close to our family that my parents even considered taking care of him in our home. Mm-hmm. And of course, you didn't say anything, because who could you possibly talk to? This powerful figure who's like a family yeah. member. He's the spiritual leader of your family. He's yeah. He's yeah. unreproachable. He's totally unreproachable, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you know, the the mind and the body is, is coping, right? That I mean, just completely dissociating. You know, and I... I remember kind of sinking into the crucifix, which is pretty sad as I think about it now, but that also saved me. What do you remember of your teenage years? So the abuse is, is ending because of 
his Parkinson's disease, mm-hmm. but you know, the damage is done. Nobody knows. You're now a teenage girl just with this all in you and you're trying to move forward. Yeah. So I think so much of it was repressed, dissociated from. Um, I really dove into music and looking back, I would sing all the time when I was little. Uh, I mean, I never stopped singing. And I think that was a true spiritual gift to get me through. So I, I dove into music uh, heavily and, you know, had leads in musicals. And I eventually met my husband. Um, and he was also a little wounded soul mm. uh, and a sweet one, too. Um, and together we kind of hobbled along, you know, in life, both being in music and academia. Um, but neither of you fully recognizing why you're hobbling. No. Right, which is, again, such a such a true and common and awful consequence of early childhood abuse is that, as you said, because of the repression and the dissociation, m- more often than not, kids have no idea why they're drowning. No idea. Yeah. No idea. I had um, anxiety then. I didn't know what that was. I um, was trying to be the best girl I could, but my mother, you know, she was not uh, in a mentally stable place, and so that relationship was strained and difficult. Did this experience make you kind of double down on your faith? And like, as you said, you're trying to be a good girl. Yep. Like trying to be the even a better Catholic girl. Like yes. I'm going to be. Yeah. If I, yeah, and, and, you know, you could imagine f- fleeing from the church, or you could imagine doubling down. Doubling like, no, down. I'm going to be Total. so amazingly perfect. Totally doubling down. Yeah, I did. I mean, yeah, I was confirmed. I sang for in the church choir. I sang free for weddings in the church and funerals and like yeah and in my even in my adult life I also did that mm. but you know before the abuse really came I was in a pretty toxic faith system my freshman year um, I was at a large university and again I was 17 because I was pushed early into school um, really difficult um in a big city, and you know, I mean, very, very lost um, inside myself, just trying to like stay above water. And then I transferred to a really wonderful medium-sized school where I actually had professors that tuned into me. One is a mother figure, and you know, my piano professor who really saved me. But I—that's when I started to have depression. It's like almost like when I started to receive love from a female, or and, and her husband was my music professor um, as well, history professor. But I think it was then, it was like almost when I had some safety, I started to feel. And the depression kind of came in strong. And anxiety. I always had anxiety. Mm-hmm. I couldn't sleep my whole life. Yeah. I wonder if anxiety is kind of a euphemism. I think you had dread, maybe, or just yeah. full-on fear. Full-on fear. Terror. Terror. Uh, yeah. Uh, when my PTSD hit, the terror was 
mm-hmm. out of this, mm-hmm. you know, element, this world. I mean, it was just the terror um, and the terror in my eyes that my therapist saw many times. Yeah. yeah. I'm guessing, Shelley, if I had evaluated you back then at 19 or 20 or 21, um, that psychiatric eval, I wouldn't have come up with PTSD because, again, trauma was so buried. It was yeah. buried in your body. It was buried in your psyche. It was... It was so much of it was, you know, unconscious or pre-conscious. It's just not accessible. Absolutely not accessible. Even though my body was like almost crying, like just trying to survive. Um, I didn't eat well in college, so I was really thin. I didn't have any money, so. (laughs) (laughs) So That could justify starving yourself. Yeah, yeah. I don't have any money. That's why I don't eat. Yeah. (laughs) It's not because I feel terrible about my body and I'm trying to shrink down to nothing. Yeah. Right. that look like um with your eventual husband that you again carry all this physical sexual spiritual trauma in your body and yet you find someone as you said kind of a a wounded soul like yourself Mm -hmm. and the two of you um link up and Mm -hmm. get engaged and get married and start your lives together and how how did that manifest in you you as a person and your psyche and your body and uh, i would imagine again it sounds like you've both found someone safe for you and mm-hmm. healing, yet you were still so unwell. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we were both unwell. And and yet this kindred love and spirit um, and lots of compassion and commonalities together, you know, my my belief is that we're we're brought together in our woundedness to heal in relationship. You know, my husband and I definitely have done that with each other and for each other. I again was such a good Christian girl that I followed all those Catholic girl, I should say, all the rules. And I was deathly afraid from the messages given to me that you do not have sex. Um, until you're married, of getting pregnant, and also that I really believed that I would probably go to hell. So the confusion with, you know, if you can imagine, you know, your your spiritual leader, the priest telling you, you know, abusing your body, and then, you know, the the Catholicism telling you, don't have sex until you're married, or you're going to go to hell. It was a massive, massive confusion. And so my husband and I, you know, found each other um, sexually, you know, in every other way but sex. So that was off the table. He was obviously safe enough for me, um, for him to touch me and hold me and... And yet, I think, you know, certainly at times early on there, the dissociation was 
was already starting to not fully present. If to protect you, yeah, mm. yeah, definitely. I, you know, once we were married, <laughs> it's funny. You know, they say you're. It's not funny, but they say you know your wedding night is you know that's the night and it's supposed to be wonderful. Oh, oh my gosh, what? No, no, no practice. Mm. Like it was. Uh, yes, painful. It's like saying your first day playing tennis is going to be great. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's terrible. terrible. You, yeah, can't even hit no the ball. Coordination, no coordination, nothing, yeah. and also, you know, pain. And so, I think you know our our sexual intimacy took a long time um, to develop where we felt safe. Do you think in the early years of marriage, sexually, you were more in kind of dissociative numbing or in kind of panic mode or? Or wonder what that that was a long time ago, but I wonder I think sexually I, how you were getting by. I think I was in a panic mode providing mm-hmm. being a good girl. Yeah. It's not that I didn't find intimacy and love with my husband. It's just that my body and my mind and my spirit had to continue to protect itself mm-hmm. by going away mm-hmm. sometimes. And so now, you know, you're a grown woman, you're married for years, you're still not in therapy. I mean, we, we still have not heard you. <laughs> and, and you are a trauma therapist right now. Yeah. And yet, here you are just, you know, putting your head down, just pushing forward, try to have the right attitude, try to, you know, try yeah. to push forward and do it, uh, but without any real help other than your husband, you know, trying to be there for you. But that, that's not the same as having a professional. No. I got busy having babies right away, and I love children. A big part of that is probably wanting to nurture my own little girl inside who was wounded so deeply, so young. And it wasn't until after my third child was born, I um, experienced postpartum. It was like in... So he, he, uh, he was born in 1998... And so my body was starting to crumble. Hormonally, things were switched up for me, obviously, having babies. But I also was not able to sleep. Most nights of my life, married early on, I would, have, I would wake up and ask my husband, 2, 3 in the morning, um, tell me that I, it's okay. Tell me that it's okay. And he would. And then he would say, it's okay to go to sleep. Yeah. So I lived like that for a very long time until after our third child was born. It hit very, very strong and badly. So I was holding our son on the front porch, and the two children, older children, were playing outside. My husband came home from school, and I was crying and pretty dissociated, which was really scary because... I was watching the children. And he said, we need to go in right now, honey. And so we dropped the kids off at our neighbor's, and he took me in to the ER, and that's where we we started Mm -hmm. the journey of healing with diagnoses and medication. Mm -hmm. Wow, so fortunate he could be there for you. That that he could walk in, he knew you so well. Yeah, you could see it in your eyes, and just say, "Okay, yeah. we 
we got time to go. We got to put the oxygen mask on you. Yeah. Yeah. Forever grateful. How then did you find your way into therapy? Yeah, so I, I saw a psychiatrist diagnosed with major depression and minor psychosis. Um, and, you know, now it would be called part of postpartum. She gave me medication that seemed to help. Like, I, you know, my sleep helped. My anxiety went down didn't go away, didn't help the real issue going on, um, but definitely changed my brain chemistry, I think, to get me into therapy. I don't believe I could have done it without that help. So, I mean, to this day, I'm a very strong component of both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, medication and psychotherapy um, or natural medication, you know, to, to help that brain chemistry. It was after I had my first panic attack that I got into therapy. I had to drive home for my aunt's funeral. I drove home to sing for my aunt's funeral in the church that I was abused. Mm. And it was right after that after I walked past his grave, actually, I got in the car, drove back home, three-hour drive, and I got whammed with a panic attack. I couldn't drive. I pulled over and sat for a good hour trying to get grounded. I got out of the car, went out into nature, like sat in the ditch, just had no idea what was happening to me. And so when I got back, I did make it home. I contacted my psychiatrist, and she got me hooked up with a therapist locally. It was my first experience in therapy. I was age, what, 36, something like that. Mm, Wow. Yeah, all those years. 22 years after the abuse stopped. Yeah. Finally sitting down to talk with somebody about it. Yeah. And my first therapist um, taught me a lot. However, it was more of a knowledge base. He kind of let me go after three months saying, wow, you're just so aware of your symptoms. You know, I think you're good to go. I, well, I get my symptoms. Like, I, you know, I, I get my history, but I don't know why this is happening. Like, what's going on? But it it was a good step to get me, you know, in the chair um, to talk about what I was experiencing in my body. And then um, my symptoms got worse, and I started having nightmares that someone was in my house. And then I had a nightmare over and over that there was a... Uh, 
priest in my house, but his head was cut off. So I couldn't see his head. It was just the white collar and black over and over that he was in my house. Hmm. Yeah. Horrifying. Horrifying. Yeah. So um, that's when I got in to therapy. And, you know, of course, sexually my body was breaking down too, right? So our sexual intimacy was on pause, not, not good. My husband started therapy for his family of origin trauma because his body was breaking down. And it's just incredible how both of us at the same time held all this in our bodies, in our mind and spirit, just putting our head down, getting to work, you know. Well, now our head was down getting to work in therapy. So my nightmares came back. It was almost as if he was even more safe for me Mm -hmm. to let it come back. That's why I'm just a firm believer that we're born to be in relationship and our woundedness brings us together in order to heal. It's incredible. So I had all these nightmares and I ended up going to his therapist, uh, a couple therapist, when they lived an hour and a half away. So it was quite a feat for us with three small children to both get there weekly and um, and was it marriage therapy you're doing, or you were doing? It started so, out as marriage therapy, mm-hmm. but I went, and they're specialists in trauma and sexual healing. I went with him the first time, and then I started meeting with his wife. So we, I met with his wife weekly for my story, and he met with the husband weekly for his story and then we'd come together for couples also mm. that So week. they were that's so interesting they were couples therapists who specialize in trauma. So yeah. they, they were doing individual trauma work yep. with you and your husband but then also bringing you back together to do the kind of the sexual healing and yeah couples emotional work. healing mm-hmm. yeah all of that right understanding each other's stories and yeah understanding who my husband was because he too was under the iceberg. It was couple months into my therapy, I had a memory of this green room. It just kept coming up in my sleep, green room, green room, green room. And my husband was out on the boat with my children fishing. It was a Saturday, and I was getting some housework done and things. And I decided to call my sister. I don't don't know why. Maybe because, I mean, my intuition told me I kept having this these nightmares of a priest with a cut-off head. So I called my sister and asked, did the rectory have a green room in it? And she said, yeah, it did. And I didn't say, connect it. I just said, okay, I, I got to go. And she said, okay, are you okay? Yeah, 
yeah, I'm okay. And I hung up and fell to my knees and started vomiting. And it all came back. It was just like completely there. I crawled, crawled to the toilet and was just throwing up and just like flashes of green and the crucifix and him. And oh, it was horrific. It was like some kind of portal opened up. Yeah, it was. It felt like it. All of a sudden you had access to to all of it. All of it. Yeah, all of it. (sighs) And I, at that time we had flip phones. So I called my husband and he was on the boat and no answer. And so I called a good friend of mine and she came over. And of course she was freaked out because I was in a wreck you know, and she said, please get me the number of your therapist. This was on a Saturday and she called and they were at a conference and they picked up and I heard a safe male voice and he guided me, did some grounding principles on me and then had my friend get me out of the bathroom, get me out of, because that room also had green in it, the bathroom. Mm. So I got out in my garden, and then a really cool spiritual thing happened, which I have a thing with eagles now. There were four eagles that just orbited the garden. I have no idea why. Just came and just came around the garden, and I've come to learn, you know, eagle means resurrection in the Christian faith. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. After that, I was in the garden, and my husband got home with the children, and my friend took the children, and uh, he was with me, and then was coached by our therapist what to do. And then on Monday morning, 6 a.m., we drove and had a session, emergency session, a couple hours. They cleared their schedule. And my path now for healing, for PTSD, you know, um, for my depression, anxiety, yes, did take a totally different turn. I started to do work um, specifically for my body. I had such incredible body memories that I could not bend over in the kitchen to get a pan because I could feel the priest behind me. It was just terrible body memories Mm -hmm. were the body memories there before this kind of portal opened up but you just didn't know what context to put them in or did this did these open up these whole kind of almost like a tactile flashback it was a tactile flashback i think the anxiety and depression were holding that Mm -hmm. it's almost like that was the protector Mm -hmm. apart and then once it got my little girl got permission and my young girl got permission. It was full on tactile memories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I started, you know, down the path of healing with that and really some painful sessions. Um, you know, now I I have people, you know, you come to therapy to feel better, but the reality is is it's hard work. And you're not going to feel better at first, but you will in the end. Yeah. And you're probably going to feel worse at first. You're going to feel worse at first. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the hardest 
you know, words that I could hear from my therapist was, you know, I need you to trust the process. And I was like, oh, that's, that's tough. So we unpacked that because trusting was, I trusted process. I trusted the, the Roman Catholic Church. I trusted a lot of people. So we unpacked that and more it was a healthy surrender to the process and to trust your body of what it's trying to tell you. As you and I were talking about before we started recording, it seems to me there were sort of three, there have been three major um, realms of healing for you. There's the post-traumatic healing, if you will, the PTSD healing. There's the spiritual healing, which yeah. is related for sure, but is a, has its own whole yeah. series of um, agonies and steps and evolutions and then there's sexual healing which is again tied in with those two but is also separate yeah. in some ways. I wonder yeah. if we might first focus in on the overall if you will kind of trauma healing PTSD healing you know you mentioned these very first steps of trusting the process which even that but how did that unfold for you you know starting to um, being able to you know to live in the present and your body soul and mind without being so haunted by the past? Well, first of all, I found a trauma therapist and a human being that was incredibly gifted. I, I believe she's a master therapist. And so I was aligned with someone that, that created that trust. Every time I came to the office, there was unconditional love a sense of safety she provided that was unspoken. And there were times, most of the initial times, I remember asking her to lock the door because I was afraid a man would come in. And she would do that. And she would ask what else I needed in order for us to do our work together. And she would have me... Was this the spouse of that yeah, the therapist was, duo? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And we went back to go forward. And so I did a lot of workbooks on off time with her. So it's almost like she created the foundation of safety for the week in order for me to go into my little girl hood and let her tell her story. So she you know, provided that space. My sessions were two hours mm-hmm. and provided that space and time to tell me more about how you grew up, family of origin. What role did you play in your family of origin? What were the rules, the spoken and unspoken rules? Um, how, how was your relationship with your, your mother and your father? and your siblings, 
So we did a lot of family of origin work coupled with that safety. And then, you know, the body memories, of course, were still going. And I would do homework at home, you know, with books dealing with um, The Body Keeps the Score, Bessel van der Kolk's work. I did um, The Courage to Heal workbook, uh, many workbooks on codependency, uh, breaking free. Anytime I give that to a client now and they look at how big it is, I said, don't, don't pay attention to that. It's okay. <laughs> we start at page one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm with you through it. And, you know, anywhere, um, one, one important thing I think that I knew about my therapist was any dark space that you're going to go in, I'm going to go with you. Any pit that you're in, I'm with you. So I could email her just typing out my emails. Of course, I, in the beginning stages, I wanted her to be almost like my mother. You know, like pay attention to me. And so I would email what was happening in my body. And that was really good to just have that portal to kind of get it out and get my story out. And then she would read them, not all, because there was a lot, uh, and, you know, use that for our next session Mm -hmm. to create safety. And it was when my, I, I think it was fairly early I got EMDR. I had another therapist come in because my therapist was not trained in that. So I, her uh, colleague was trained and certified in it. And she came into the office and did EMDR with me, where we used bilateral stimulation, and that saved me. You know, there's a, a long protocol of um, phases of EMDR, and the first step that we do as EMDR therapist. Um, is to establish a safe place. And so I did that um, and used that for weeks. Was your singing? What's that? Was it singing? Yeah, my, yeah, my I, safe place was singing uh, in a garden. Mm. Singing. It's like four-year-old. Mm. Yeah. I also had permission always to like set the book down when it got too much. And that was hard for me because my work ethic kept pushing. Mm. (laughs) That part kept pushing. However, I also remembered my therapist's words of too much doesn't mean, you know, you're getting better. So this is about listening, active listening to what your body is saying, and when it gets too much, to titrate. Yeah. Yeah, so the EMDR, as I was learning cognitively how to titrate, what was happening, I was also had the chemical bilateral stimulation creating new neural pathways in my brain to help. Mm-hmm. Um, after a safe place is established in EMDR, we take a current situation and for me it was nightmares and the worst part of that 
the negative belief I'm having, the emotions, body sensations, and we float back to an earlier time when you felt that before. Mm. And then we process that, you know, um, with the bilateral stimulation. So it was, it, it was scary. I, I didn't, I remember saying a lot, and I hear this from my clients too, I'm afraid if I, if I remember and go there, it might kill me. I might die. And that was very real for me. Yeah. really important uh, for survivors. The most important words for me, anyhow, is I believe you. And of course, my therapist believed me and my spouse because they saw my body breaking down and my mind. However, my family couldn't see all of that. The first people that I told to find my voice was the church. The church came to the office of my therapist, the vicar general, for a report. And so I told my story there, and it was a female, and which helped. And she took it down, you know, writing down. Um, and then she was supposed to be my spokesperson, and she did not follow through on that because she was leaving the church. So I had another vicar general come, and I had to tell my story again. I was like, don't you have it the first time? (laughs) We call that re-traumatizing. And my therapists were very protective and very upset with this process. And they had worked with the church many years in their work. And they were with you while you were talking. Yes, and so so was my husband. Mm -hmm. So I had my storyline, you know, my story laid out and was able to be grounded enough in my body to speak it. I mean, lots of tears. I had to take lots of pauses. Um, so after that, my therapist said, we need, you know, how, how do you feel about telling your some of your, your siblings or your parents? I started with some of my siblings. And, you know, initially... I, I told, uh, um, let's see, maybe four, four of my sisters. And they, of course, were shocked and, you know, crying and upset for me. And they did believe me, but their whole world was turned upside down. I would not doubt if they questioned, maybe they were abused and didn't remember. Um, so initially they believed me. And my brothers, my older brothers I called, and they immediately believed me, which was really helpful. <laughs> and uh, one of my brothers remembers... Um, but even that we're talking about this as if there's a question that they would believe you. Yeah. You know, like if that was helpful, they believe. Of course it was effing helpful, but yeah, th- that there's any doubt that your siblings would... But, but of course there was doubt because of the power of, the power of this of man the... 
and the institution and, and the whole system yeah. of his him being part of our family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my older brothers believed me, um, and one brother in particular who I'm so so grateful for, and his wife, complete supports to me to this day. And then I decided to tell my parents with the help of my therapist and my husband came and they drove three and a half hours to get to the therapist before that session I had gotten there early my stomach was full of sweat rolling down sweat my I I it was I was so afraid and scared um, I, my clothes were wet by the time I got to the couples therapy office. So my therapist did a lot of grounding work before we went in, a lot of breathing work, a lot of truth setting that my parents also lived through this. What they're going to hear will not kill them. Mm-hmm. So I had to tell my little girl that and tell my young woman that and my wise woman we can do this. Um, and so there's a, there's a feisty part in me. She's about eight years old. We'll get to that later. And we went upstairs, and my clothes wet from sweat, and I, I told my parents. And my mother sat and wept in her own grief, not really, well, not being able to be there for me, actually not even looking at me. Um, And my dad, you know, he's a funny guy, a farmer, just salt of the earth kind of man. Uh, You know, his face was disbelief, like, and then uh, he just kind of started talking to my, my therapist, you know, about how it was on the farm, and you just didn't know, and, you know, he was part of our family, and you know I had raised these thirteen kids, and yeah, and I was sobbing, so wanting to go over to comfort my mother, mm. which was interesting because yeah. that was my role. And my therapist looked at me, and she kept pointing her finger, not yet, mm. not yet. She was waiting for my mother to be able to look up at me to give me some comfort. And when she looked up and looked at me, then my therapist said, now go. And I just, on my knees crying in my parents' lap. Mm. Yeah. That was a hard day. Because it it shattered their world. And and it was needed to heal the family. Not only the family, but others in the community. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if there's any part of either either one of them that wasn't surprised. Uh, It's interesting because my dad said on the drive up to your therapist, I had a feeling this was it. I had a feeling that he did something to you. Mm. Yeah, I, I, they were in shock, but I, 
I believe they both knew, and I think my mother knew too. Mm. It's just the oppression and the sim, you know, the system is just too, too big, too wide, too deep. Yeah. Did you get what you needed from your mom? No. After, after this revelation, no. No, actually, uh, my family doubled down, and my sisters, a few of my sisters, uh, just said, you know, we don't believe you, which was really traumatizing. And and yet I understood from the textbook like why they didn't, because my our mother was not doing well, and a lot of my brothers closest to me... <laughs> Um, did not believe me and would, you know, kind of came emotionally abusive, you know, telling me to shut the hell up, you're killing mom. And they all said, you're killing mom and dad. And why did you have to bring this up? Not all my siblings, which I'm so grateful for. I have a sister who I'm very close to and I can tell her anything and a brother and sister-in-law. Yeah. So really what they were saying kind of as a group is, Whatever your truth is, it doesn't really matter. We got to, we got to protect mom. We got to protect mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep the keep the family line, and no grandchildren should know about this. Mm. Yeah, I had a sibling call me up saying, you know, don't you think you're going to tell my kids? And I was thinking, well, of course I'm not, because I understand boundaries. That's your and your family. However, they should know, because this is how abuse cycles stop. You know, and for, I mean, to know the truth about their aunt and the system and our family and oppression and, you know, that healing can happen, you know. Um, I had, you know, my therapist, the vision was for me was to be able to accept my parents for what they could and could not give. You know, so my mom couldn't give me much due to her guilt and shame. But I did not want to cut that relationship off because she's my mother. But I had to grieve. So I, I did a lot of grief work with my body memories um, before she even died. Yeah. yeah. You've said quite a bit about your kind of pathway of healing from PTSD. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we might shift to talk a little bit about your your, your spiritual healing, because um, spiritual trauma and abuse is a thing, and that's a huge part of this story and many other people's stories. Um, and you grew up in the church, and it's um, faith is still a part of your life, and you. Yeah. Uh, I'm just wondering, how did that healing unfold for you? Well, I think we have to go back to when I was little and I would I was being abused because my mind, my psyche broke off into this place of like I I would look at the crucifix and I would sink into Jesus and I always heard in CCD class that Jesus got off the cross and came back 
to help people, to get them. And so I just held on to that. And so Jesus wasn't the one I had problems with. (laughs) (laughs) Good cop, bad cop. Jesus, good cop. Good cop. Uh, It was God, the three in one. And I actually hear that in a lot of my work that I do with um, pre-sex abuse. And I sit with a lot of people today. And it's a common thing where the psyche knows what to do to survive through it. So I, you know, again, was being that good girl and trying to grasp on, but going to the black and white. um, I started to realize then in my recovery of PTSD, in my body healing, I was in the same type of church, just a different flavor. (laughs) And I started reading about spiritual abuse. I mean, it was pretty obvious in my healing that I was spiritually abused from the priest, but I didn't realize it was continuing in other modalities. So I started reading The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse, Toxic Faith. I, uh, we pulled out of the church we were in because it was becoming very clear that it was not a healthy system for me. I set some healthy boundaries with my family in order to also spiritually heal. Um, Not cut off, because I don't believe in cut offs. I just go underground then, but working through it. And so I communicated, you know, my intent is to not hurt you, but I'm needing this time and space to to heal. And so it's, it's hard to be around home and... And, it, and also around people who didn't believe me. So I set healthy boundaries in that spiritual healing. I actually had a good friend who, he and his wife were, he was an Episcopal priest. And to this day we are still good friends. And he was a practice guy for me. And we would kind of titrate when, like he wore black and white, and my brain could get used to that, that he's a safe spiritual being. Mm. Um, Again, healing in relationship. Healing in relationship. The next step I did was I got into my breath and started to do yoga. Well, I always did yoga, but when the memories came back, I couldn't because they were too strong. And my body was in these vulnerable positions that once were familiar when I was little. So I started to heal also my spirit with kickboxing. (laughs) That's that feisty girl that came out. and I started to heal my spirit um, with, we had a pool. So I would get in the pool and just kick the shit out of the priest, um, which felt really great. And I had really good looking thighs that summer. Um, I also started to heal heal spiritually with um, my husband, who did a miraculous, miraculous event, we'd call it. I kept having, you know, body memories or uh, nightmares, and so his therapist suggested 
and of course talked to my therapist, his wife, and suggested, I wonder if she's looking for a safe male to stand in for her. Besides my pastor, who was, uh, you know, my friend, who was an Episcopal priest, my husband's therapist recommended that I needed a safe man to come in to help me with my nightmares. And my husband does not get angry. He's a real gentle soul. However, once he found his anger in his own story, he started to heal deep too. So one day, it was in the summer, he went to Walmart and bought some plates and some wine glasses that would make good sound, all sorts of cheap cheap stuff um, that he put in the car. And then he put, apparently he had this whole thing in the back. He had a jacket for me, goggles, a hat, a helmet, a bat. And <laughs> he told the, the neighbor neighbors to watch our children like I gotta now's the time I gotta go (laughs) they had no idea what we were doing um but could you watch the children he he didn't tell me either he's like it's time to go you you I, I really I really want you to get in the car I'm gonna take you somewhere okay so got in the car I thought oh we're just gonna go on a little date he's gonna I don't know give me a rose or something I don't know what I was thinking bouquet of flowers or something like have a moment together. And he gets me out in this abandoned field and opens the trunk. <laughs> and there's all this gear in there. Like, what? A helmet? I mean, and he got it on. And he, got, he got me dressed and goggles and opened up the box and got the bat and started throwing up the bat and uh, throwing up the, the, you know, glass and just hitting, hitting the shit out of it and just screaming at the priest, get off her, don't touch her, you know, how dare you? Just, yeah, glass was just shattering all over. It was so powerful. I just fell, you know, and was crying and crying. And then he was crying, of course. And then he gave the bat to me. And he said, now it's your turn. And I'm going to be with your little girl. Mm. And I pretty much, yeah, beat the shit out of him. And it felt good. I, I had, we both had a session the next day. I think Maybe he, it was a Sunday, so we, I bet we had a session on Monday. And maybe he was like, oh my gosh, I got to do this now because tomorrow we have a session. <laughs> but also I think he was ready. We hit so hard that, you know, my husband had major pain in his forearm hmm. just to protect my little girl and, and me. Yeah. I'm not saying you have to get angry every time to get it out. Or there's there's so much um, stored in the body. I think that 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 anxiety, intenseness. That I think the the next level is anger, and then the next uh, primary emotion is sadness, grief, 
you know, um, you know, tear that that deep sinking in the body. Uh, but that first stage of like executing it from the body for me it started with vomiting, yeah. and then it moved through the rest of my body. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see where it. you and your husband smashing all this glass and plates with the baseball bats. I mean, this is actually a kind of spiritual healing. Total spiritual yeah. healing. Yeah. too, Shelley, and you had written about this before in, in some of our contexts before the recording, but another huge part of your spiritual healing was the choir that you had. Oh, I yeah. I if you might just say a little bit about that, about this idea of kind of reclaiming music and song and group and the power of, of that communion and voice and music to I mean, not, not just bring beautiful things to those kids in the world, but for you specifically in your healing path. Yeah, so you know, we talk about post-traumatic growth in the therapy world, and, you know, what are we going to do with this story, you know, um, with me? And um, it was an awakening where I started, well, I actually left another organization that was oppressive, interestingly enough, and I found my voice. All this was coming together, so the spiritual connection of my being was extremely present in the formation of Sing Out Loud. And um, I was going to just quit music, but all the parents of the young women that I worked with showed up at my door and said, we want you and to work with our daughters. And it was in the same time in 2007, I created, well, my husband and I created, and my my children, my, my littlest was six years old and would answer the phone, you know, taking auditions. <laughs> Hello, Weinmillers and all about your young women's club. How can I book, how can I help you? Do you want to book an audition? And so um, off started this choir of young women. And it was like a reclaiming of, it started with eighth through 12th grade, and then it grew um, into three choirs and still is today. Um, kindergarten <laughs> up to high school. And as I look back at programming all of my my programs, it aligns with my spiritual journey completely and where I was. So my first concert, here I am at St. Mary's Chapel looking into a crucifix. Talk about healing. And these, you know, beautiful young women, their voices coming back and going out. And each of them, it was like I could see into their souls. Um, One thing, I think with the blessing of the abuse, if there can be any blessing from it, and I think there can be, is my ears became very attuned to sound. I think I was always listening to, 
to see if someone was going to come in to the room, to the green room. So I can hear voices in a choir of 65. I can tap which girl is not placing the right vowel correctly to create the sound that I knew could happen, a spiritual sound. So my ears were really tweaked. And actually, when things are not in tune, my my spine hurts and I get a sore back. So I'd always say to the girls in rehearsal, like, oh, please, no, 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 don't hurt me, please. And they would laugh. But the connection with those young women and those little girls, complete not a coincidence of my healing journey in my mind, body, and spirit. We traveled all over the world and did outreach, and I taught them, like we had the women's shelter come, and we taught about abuse cycles, and then we would sing and raise money for these organizations. And we traveled, yeah, to um, Hungary and Italy multiple times, and all over the world, Greece, and showed them the world and the power of music and young women coming together, because everybody's voice counts. And where there's oppression for women, nothing was stronger than a group of women coming together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What an example of how beautiful projects are good for everybody in the project and the person running the project. It was, yeah, like, who, it was, who would have guessed like when they, your choirs were traveling around and people watching you and, and they thought, wow, look at this amazing woman in our choirs, but they could have never no guessed like, what this is doing for you. Yeah, right. On such a deep level. And, and I think... You know, I mean, uh, my son has a memory of laying down in the pew, and I would ask them to listen like before the concert. And he was like, "It was a sound I've that transported me." And so there was definitely spiritual work. You know, I think it was the Holy Spirit whipping through that building um, because Bella concerts would never leave with triads. We actually had to have Kleenex in every pew <laughs> because, the, and it wasn't just parents. I mean, like. 2,000 people would come to these concerts. So obviously, something really grand was happening. Mm-hmm. And I think it was, yeah, uh, you know, my spirit being heal- healed through the girls and through the community. we might now shift to this kind of third realm of healing. You know, we talked a little bit about the healing from PTSD and um, spiritual healing, but talk a little bit more in detail about sexual healing. I mean, that was the, well, well I was going to say that was the primary wound, if you will, but I, I think you could actually argue, argue it was 50-50 sexual, spiritual, like they, and that's probably what made it even more yeah. destructive. But how did you go from, you know, as you described you know, earlier in our recording today, that sort of a place of willingness, wanting to, if you will, kind of be a good wife and do what's expected to actually being able to reclaim your body, maybe even reclaim desire or pleasure mm-hmm. to be, be, become a sexual being versus like someone who's able to be sexual. Yes. And, and, I, there was a lot of that, just a sexual doing. 
which I actually think is extremely common for people. Um, yeah, so I, with all the rules and all the shame carried in my body, we started in therapy to approach sex as um, an intimacy. And for me, that starts with connection and emotion in myself, in my own spirit, and then connection with my husband. And because we are both doing that work, we're more easily able to come. However, I, um, no pun intended there, (laughs) I had a harder time because I was so used to dissociating or just the doing part, right? Not being in pleasure. So I had to retrain um, and build trust with my husband that he was going to stop if I asked him and he would respect that. And so our therapist worked a lot on that with us. Anytime anyone needs to stop, to pause, to feel, to sense, uh, that happens and we take our time. And again, that emotional connection, which then leads to healthy sexual intimacy, being in your body. There were times like I I would start that way and then I would float out. And I got to the point where I could recognize when I was floating out. Um, I think most survivors can recognize it. That may not be true, but it seems to me in my work I've done, you can recognize when you kind of exit your body. So that's when I would stop. And when I would stop, my husband would hold me. And a lot of times there was just no talking. I didn't need to explain myself. He could also feel it at that time because I was present. And he was present. And of course, that's better than anything. That's better than any orgasm you're ever going to have. So um, that was a huge part of our healing. The next part of our healing sexually together was me giving myself permission that I am a sexual being and doesn't have anything to do with my abuse. I get to reclaim it. So that was really, really powerful that I get to reclaim my, not only my mind and body, my physical body, that I could manage the PTSD symptoms, but my, my sexual body. Yeah. Were there some key steps or insights or practices or things you did that helped you move to y- that? Yeah. So, again, y- you need a lot of grounding. I used to have to wear a belt. And the girlfriend who sat with me in that initial memory, she bought me a really nice belt. And (laughs) it was a big silver buckle. But I wore it with every outfit, Uh, even with like dresses that didn't match or anything. (laughs) Because I had so many body memories in my, my sexual being when I started to reclaim that, that would come up. I had to ground myself. I had to get rid of wearing skirts and dresses for a while because when I would go in and try, when summertime hit, I couldn't 
be in the dressing room, my body would just shake because I had this fear of, you know, him coming up my dress in the back, you know, or getting me. So I just had to cut out some clothing for a while, and I got the belt, <laughs> and I wore the belt. <laughs> I could wear it tight if I wanted it, like, by my belly button, because I had a lot of memories there. Mm-hmm. Or I could hang it lower, right, mm-hmm. on a, and hang it, and I'd keep my hands over by my privates. Like, it would go there. Mm-hmm. Like, you're not going to get me. Um, so it was just a constant reminder, like, no, we don't need to be in that fight, flight, freeze mode. You are not going to touch me. Yeah. So it's sort of a way to establish body, bodily safety. Bodily the, safety. Throughout the day. Yep, like you, throughout you could, the day. You could sort of shift the belt, move it, touch it, adjust it so you could be grounded. safe, grounded. And then that helped, uh, obviously, when I would be sexually intimate with my spouse because I remind myself, this is my husband. This is not that asshole. Mm-hmm. This is not him. That's over, honey. You know, we're... Talk to my little girl a lot, that part. You know, I've got you, and I hear your pain, and we're in this self-energy here. You know, the God within, the spirit within. Mm. Yeah. And that's that's where we are right now. My therapist also suggested, like, a, a necklace or something I could feel. So I actually went out and bought a Pandora charm bracelet. And I, I bought, uh, they had a, a charm of a little girl, and that was my first charm. And I went into the store, and I said, I'll take that one, and I just wept. And the, the clerk said, do you need me to call someone? Is there anything, you know, are you okay? And I said, I'm okay, I've got her. <laughs> and, you know, my 14-year-old sexual being, my right, I was like, oh, hell yeah, I'm fine. And... From from that day on, I added each of the charms to reclaim, like my music have a charm, you know, the Bible got a charm, uh, my marriage, I have a charm, uh, you know, every every step of my healing journey, I would add a charm, and I'd wear it every day and look down at that, and realize the purpose and the perseverance and you know just the the strength that. I was happy to walk through this, not, you know, for me, but like for my kids. I mean, those, and my life, their life, my husband's life, being a friend, being a daughter, being a sister, being who I wanted to be. Trauma healing happens in relationship. We heal through the compassion, patience, kindness, and love of others, which can then allow us to find our own inner peace and strength. It's love that catalyzes our inner healing intelligence. It's connection that changes us and eventually restores us to who we can be.